This is Being Better, the podcast about the science behind mindsets and practices that make us happier, wiser, and healthier. My name is Julia Spohr, and I am your host. Join us as each week we break down scientific research and bring you true stories of people from all walks of life to help you make better decisions that will shape your tomorrow. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here and I hope your day is going great so far and that this podcast can make it even better. And I think it actually may because this week I was joined by Dr. Anna Kress. She's a clinical psychologist from New Jersey and is in private practice in Princeton. In her work, she integrates trauma-informed psychotherapy with mindful self-compassion, which is something that we discussed at length in this episode. I really loved it because you know that I am a big fan of self-compassion and I think when we are compassionate to ourselves, as a result, we always turn out to be more compassionate to other people, which, you know, makes for a healthier society. Uh, but yeah, coming back to Dr. Kress, she also has a huge background in meditation and spirituality because she has been a practicing meditator for many years and she has done a lot of research on the psychology of spirituality. And specifically, her research has focused on spirituality among women who are experiencing infertility. So Dr. Kress uses all of that scientific knowledge and her years of experience with healing from trauma and experience in mindfulness to help countless people around the world and also leads educational and experiential workshops on emotional health and manifesting goals. So from our conversation this week, you can learn about dealing with trauma, um, the psychology of manifestation, and more specifically trauma-informed manifestation, which is a method created by Anna that can help you overcome uh, mistakes that are pretty common among beginners to manifesting. We also talked about how to heal by working with the body and not against it, how to develop a healthy relationship with our inner child, um, what are the different attachment styles, which I really found interesting. We also talked about the importance of self-compassion and how to foster it, the science of spirituality, among just many, many more topics that I think you might find thought-provoking. So I don't want to keep you from listening to Dr. Chris any longer. Um, and without further ado, here is our chat and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you feeling? Very good. I'm so happy to be here and so excited to, that we both speak Polish and so interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's like the most, um, there's maybe like a small percentage of listeners that are going to understand us, but it's going to be like this small Easter egg for anyone, <laughs> any Polish people out there. Um, so 
Before we get on with the discussion and all my questions, I want to ask you for your recommendation for us this week. So for all new listeners, I like to start off the show by asking the guests, which are frankly the people that I admire, um, to share something that they find inspiring or thought-provoking or just enjoyable. And I guess it's like a way to get a like a look behind the scenes and get a better grasp on um, what made them into the people they are. Uh, so yeah, what can you share with us this week? Sure, sure. Well, I read um, a lot of books about trauma because uh, as a trauma therapist, but also because I find them so helpful in uh, teaching people self-compassion. So there's a book that I'm currently reading that I'm so excited about, and it just came out. It's called Anchored. How to Befriend Your Nervous System Using Polyvagal Theory, and it's by Deb Dana. And it's so useful if you don't understand the nervous system. It's a great introduction, and it's really very practical. So it helps you to learn different techniques that work for you to help you to feel safe with your emotions, to help you to feel safe in your body. So it's really, I think, just a great starter for anybody interested in learning about trauma or the nervous system. Yeah, I really love that. I think trauma is such an interesting topic. I used to think about it like, I don't have trauma, like nothing really bad ever happened to me. But then I realized that nothing really serious uh, has to like happen to you uh, in order for you to have that stored in your body somewhere. And like I recently realized that I have a lot of trust issues and they all stem from... um, like some situations that happen um, when I was like an early teen and I and I realized that really a lot of people don't realize that they have trauma and so I think that could be really helpful. Yeah and I think it's so interesting that today we're seeing a lot more information come out you know on social media and things like that about trauma and I think it's really helping people to uh, develop a greater awareness about their own experiences and have that compassion and also to learn skills that actually help them. So I think it's great that people are identifying that more today and realizing that trauma isn't necessarily what they thought it was. Yeah. What was something that you misunderstood about trauma that you learned maybe from the book or maybe um, from other sources that you could share with us? Sure, sure. Well, you know, when I think back to when I started graduate school a million years ago now, (laughs) um, like two decades ago, Uh, you know, what we were taught was very different than what people understand about trauma today. So we didn't really learn about the nervous system that much in depth. We didn't really um, think about it as a, you know, somatically as a part of the body, as trauma getting stored in the body and ways to work with that. We talked a lot and learned a lot about in those days about thinking about emotional wounds and things like that cognitively, you know, intellectually, you know, getting insight to understand things, but not really having the tools for someone to hold space for us to work with our bodies and work with our emotions on a, in a deeper, more experiential kind of way. And so I think one of the things that I've really learned is that if you want to work with trauma, you really have to work with the body in some ways, you know, there's two different ways to look at that. One approach when it comes to therapy is that we have a top-down approach, meaning we work with our thoughts and changing our thoughts and insight and understanding. And there's another approach called bottom-up. So that's working more with your body, what's happening in the moment. Um, And it's very experiential. And so both are very helpful and valid 
approaches, obviously, but if you have trauma, a bottom-up approach is really going to be more helpful. And so it's not just about thoughts, which is why I think it's so interesting, you know, that the topic that we're going to talk about today, you know, when we think about positive thinking, for trauma survivors, that's not going to be the best fit. And when they try, yeah, well, when you think about it, right, if a thought approach, like a top-down approach, focusing on your thoughts, isn't necessarily appropriate for someone with trauma, then giving someone positive thinking advice saying, you know, you should really think positively all the time, that might be really hard for someone with trauma because positive thoughts don't come that easily and we have a lot of blocks to them. And so, um, and working with changing our thoughts can be very challenging if you have trauma. So working with the body and emotions and then thoughts actually is more uh, effective with someone who has a trauma background, for example. And so, you know, when we're thinking about positive thinking advice, I, I have a very different approach when it comes to that. Yeah. It's so interesting how it like it can be stored within your body and even like you can forget about it and not ever think about those situations, but it can like it can be stored within you and without knowing it affects everything that you do, every thought that you have. That situation that, you know, maybe you are three years old. And yeah, I think it's just it's it's incredible how our body works yeah and those things can get triggered and when they get triggered often what we do and very unconsciously you know these are just patterns that we have we don't think about them when those you know um, old wounds are triggered we usually have some kind of a coping mechanism and some of them are healthy and some of them not so healthy but they're usually things that help us to kind of uh, push down the emotions that are triggered so for example we might you know get into addictive behaviors to kind of push those triggers down or we might you know you know um do all kinds of things it could be too much online shopping it could be like watching tv to zone out it could be uh overeating you know there are a lot of different behaviors that we engage in that we try to suppress those triggers when they do come up and so sometimes people will recognize these behaviors that you know some people call them self-sabotaging i don't particularly like that way of talking about it because it's not uh, that compassionate. These are survival skills that we learned. Yeah. And so sometimes people recognize their trauma responses more than the actual event. They might not even recall the actual event sometimes. Yeah. The topic is so incredibly interesting. So thank you for your recommendation. I'm going to link the book in the episode description for all the listeners. Um, and now I kind of want to move on to manifestation. And I want to start by asking you how you first thought of combining um, manifestation and therapy. Um, uh, because I think it's not a typical approach, uh, especially um, I think a lot of like therapists and, and clinical psychologists have like more like a Freudian approach maybe it's a stereotype um but manifestation is not something that I would typically think of when thinking about um yeah I need to go through therapy um and how that would look so um would you mind describing some like the early years of your work and what situations uh, shaped your work and inspired you to uh, include manifestation in your practice Yeah, so uh, manifesting is something that I've been interested in since I was a teenager. So I think the first book I probably picked up on manifesting was Creative Visualization by Shakti Gawain, which I still love that book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's something that I was interested in. 
And so basically, if you know your listeners don't aren't familiar with it, it's basically this idea that we can manifest our dreams, our desires, things that we want in our lives. And there are different approaches to that. Often the approach is like positive thinking or, you know, unblocking uh, limiting beliefs. Like there are different approaches to manifesting, um, you know, attracting things into our life, law of attraction, things like that. Uh, so when I first learned about it, I used, you know, manifestation practices, you know, visualization, things like that. And they worked. They worked and I manifested some amazing things very uh, unexpectedly in such synchronistic kind of ways that you couldn't explain them rationally, really. And well, so some of those things, there were so many things along the way. I, I, at some point I created a list because I, you know, the times when you don't believe you want to look at that list. I, I, I recommend that to people because then you can sort of see the things that uh, have happened in your life. But for me, um, some of the very specific manifestations, like I wanted to you know, have a certain job or live on a certain street or even find a job for my partner on a certain in a building that I thought was pretty. Oh, my and God, it would just like so specific. very specific things would happen um, that you couldn't have planned because uh, there were things that that, you know, didn't even make sense necessarily. So I can't <laughs> without divulging a ton about my personal life as a therapist, uh, yeah. go into all the details. But there were just such very specific manifestations um, you know, down to the exact kind of, uh, like I foster dogs, for example. So I'll give you a recent example. I foster dogs and my husband was dead set against getting a dog. So I was like, well, this is kind of feeling yeah. hopeless, you know, getting a dog. And so, uh, but he was okay fostering them. So I was like, well, let me manifest a dog because I love dogs. I want a dog in my life. I grew up with dogs. And so... it's <laughs> the best kind of manifestation. Yes, exactly. It's such a happy manifestation. And so for all the dog lovers, I'm sure they get it. Um, so at first I had this idea of like what the perfect dog would be and then things like that. And then finally, I kind of wrote it out exactly the types of qualities that I would like in the experience of having a dog, right? So the, the type of dog that would fit me and my family really, really well and be like aligned with, with, uh, our lifestyle and things like that. Anyway. And then I gave up. I said, forget it. I'm totally detached from this idea. And so I, I let it go completely emotionally letting it go. And, and that's one of the things that I think are key to manifesting is the emotional surrender, but it's so hard to have emotional surrender. I think that that is something that I really, really focus on because you can't do it mentally. It's something emotional and it's harder than just like uh, detaching yourself thinking wise. So anyway, um, and then I let it go completely. And then, of course, this like perfect dog walks into our lives that fits everybody perfectly. And then as soon as I let it go, like literally a week after I said, forget it, I give up. He's like, okay, let's keep the dog. Oh. And so that's just like one example. And it was the exact, even the way it looked was something I envisioned. So it was kind of funny. But, you know, again, it's very specific and I had totally given up hope. And so it was just, you know, one little example, but there were big manifestations and smaller manifestations that have happened. So I really believed in manifesting. And then as I got older, again, because I've been interested in manifesting for so long, um, 30 years, basically, there were times where manifesting didn't work. And I was really interested in why. Why wasn't it working? Did I have some emotional block? Um, was there something else? 
was I, and I think I went through this phase where I was like, well, am I not thinking positively enough? And that wasn't helpful at all (laughs) to go through that kind of phase. And so I've sort of looked at manifesting from that perspective of combining it with psychology to try to really understand how do we get to a place of emotional surrender? Do we have emotional blocks to manifesting? And my dissertation uh, topic was infertility and women, uh, women's spirituality. So I really looked at women who were trying to get pregnant and it wasn't happening for them. And, you know, they identified themselves as spiritual and believing in, in like a divine, you know, um, or higher uh, power or God or something like that. Um, you know, various religions, various spiritualities. And for them, it was really interesting to see like what happens psychologically when you've asked this higher power to help you get pregnant and have a baby and it hasn't happened. So that is something that I've really been looking at for a long time. And, um, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what are some of the pitfalls and how to help people really overcome those pitfalls, um, overcome those obstacles to manifesting what they really want from a uh, spiritual perspective and a psychological perspective. And so it's been a long time coming to really come up with my own sort of theory about this. Uh, that's very interesting. I've been thinking about uh, manifestation. I had like weird history with it. Um, when I was a kid, my father was very into it. Mm-hmm. And he was always talking about the law of attraction and how you need to let go. Like you said, you have to surrender. And on one hand, I was like, this is amazing. On the other hand, I was unable to let go of the things that I wanted. Um, I'm a very big proponent of the science uh, behind the things, especially the psychology and the things that help us achieve the life that we want. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you kind of explain why manifestation works and what really happens when we really, really, really want something like a dog (laughs) uh, and then we let go, we surrender and then it just happens that we can have that thing. So I think there are two sides to it. There's like the spirituality of of manifesting and then there's the psychology. And they do integrate. They do come together. But you know, I think it depends for the person if they on the person if they believe in the spiritual spiritual piece, the energetic piece. But the way that I see it from that perspective is um you know, psychologically let's start there maybe is that we repeat old patterns until they're healed, right? We do that unconsciously. We repeat the past. And so manifesting our deepest desires isn't as simple as just positive affirmations, you know, where we we repeat what we want to happen. That can be effective to some degree, but when we have a deeper wound or some kind of, you know, deeper wound where there's a limiting belief deep down, like there's a part of us that is still operating from an older, uh, you know, program, I guess you could say, you know, that's going to be a lot more challenging. So we have to do some more deep, you know, healing work. Um, And so that will actually help us once we do some healing work. And also once we work with the nervous system so that we feel safe, we can actually start manifesting the things we want. Because often psychologically, if we're not feeling safe, if there's a part of us that is afraid to manifest something or has had a bad experience with something, um, we need to work with that part compassionately so that we can get to a point where we can do that emotional surrender. We can feel aligned. We can feel confident about what we want to manifest because 
I think a lot of manifestation is feeling like it's possible. You know, a lot of uh, the things you'll read about manifesting and the law of attraction is you have to believe, you have to believe in possibilities, you have to have faith that it's going to happen. But it's hard to have faith when you've had bad experiences. It's hard to to believe when there's a deep core wound there. And so when we work from a deeper, deeper, deeper place, then it's actually easier to feel like, hey, anything is possible. And you feel safe enough to explore, to take risks, to look at creative solutions. And so you're much more open and you try new things. And, you know, from a very practical sense, like let's say it's a dating situation where you want to manifest your soulmate. Right. You want this like yeah. amazing relationship. Uh, we could use that as an example. If you have a lot of wounds around trust and around uh, relationships, um, you know, from caregivers and your attachment style is insecure, let's say it's anxious. For example, that's going to come up in romantic relationships. And so if you work on that attachment style, both healing the original wound and healing, uh, you know, the nervous system response, that survival mechanism that gets kicked in when you start approaching relationships, like let's say, uh, you know, you're dating and you get anxious, then you're going to, um, Mm. you know, react rather than be intentional about how you want to conduct yourself in that, you know, example. And so they really do come together. The spiritual aspects, you know, from an energetic perspective, you're more open, you're more, um, expansive and so it's easier to attract what you want you can look at it from that perspective and then also from the psychological perspective you know it's about feeling safe in our nervous system in our bodies our inner child feeling safe so that we can attract those things into our lives yeah well your example of relationships really hit home I have to say (laughs) um I think um sometimes the thing that we fear the most um actually is going to be the thing that happens to us because we fear it the most and I think um yeah my romantic life I think is really affected um by that and by those like early memories and 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 yeah I think it's really it could be really helpful maybe for me to try uh manifestation in that way also through um but not just manifesting because like like you said it's important to be aware of the things that happened in your past and so i know that because uh, of all of this because the because of the connection of trauma and manifestation that works uh, you um, created this um, practice of trauma informed manifesting and i really love the idea and i think yeah, I think it can um, attract a lot of people to manifestation that would otherwise not even think of it. So can you um, explain this practice to us? Um, what are its key principles and how can we uh, take the full advantage of trauma-informed manifesting? Sure. Um, so I, I created trauma-informed manifesting because... A lot of the approaches out there for manifesting what we want in our lives are either based on positive thinking or hustle, kind of like taking a lot of action. And those don't necessarily work for people. So I was trying to find something or create something really that is, first of all, trauma sensitive. So that is one of the key features of trauma-informed manifesting. So basically that means that 
you know, I modify trauma, te- I mean, um, I modify manifestation teachings and practices so that they're sensitive to trauma, sensitive to mental health. For example, the idea of law of, the law of attraction, you know, often people will get worried that like, oh my gosh, does that mean I attracted all my experiences, including my traumas? You know, and so one of the first things I teach is you didn't attract your trauma. There are many explanations for why things happen and to really give people a sense of it's not your fault. And that that's a really important kind of shift that I think is important. So it's a very trauma sensitive approach uh, where, you know, for example, also acknowledging privilege and things like that, really having that be a part of the conversation of manifesting that for some people, some things are easier, you know, and that we're not all at the same starting point to really acknowledge that and not as an afterthought, but as a real part of the conversation of manifestation. And when it comes to the different types of, um, you know, key principles, the first one is, again, it's a very healing approach. So the first step is working with the nervous system, the body, teaching emotion regulation skills. How do you get to the point where you're not constantly you know overwhelmed emotionally and physically you know nervous system wise or shut down but rather kind of operating in this healthy kind of range where you feel resilient where you have a sense of emotional well-being and that will help you feel more positive too actually about attaining the things you want to attain so making the body feel safe how can we mm, work with that body we have that nervous system Uh, what are some ways that we can support it Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think (laughs) there's so many great things we can do. And they're individual. One, some of my favorite are, you know, when we feel emotionally dysregulated, are, you know, obviously, deep breathing is something that everyone talks about. But when you are in a very sympathetic um, response, having a sympathetic response, meaning that you are feeling anxious, you're feeling kind of amped up and things like that, is long exhale breathing. So long exhale breathing where you might breathe in for like a count of four and breathe out for a count of like eight or 10 even. So it's really long exhales that can get you into that sort of, uh, you know, emotionally regulated state if you are very anxious in the moment. So that's one technique. Another one that I love is called wet noodle, Okay. which is basically (laughs) you scanning your whole body and sensing where is their tension. So you might find like you're having tension in your back. Like right now I have some tension in my back. So you might. Me too. Yeah. I'm just like uh, vibing with you, but I have like in between my shoulder blades, there's some tension there. Yeah. So, you know, you can move it around to release it. Once you recognize where it is, you can shake it off. You know, that's a very good response. You can stretch it. You can breathe through it to release it. See if you can release it until your body feels like wet noodle where you're just kind of like, uh, like just releasing all the tension. <laughs> if you can do that, that's a great technique. I love that one. Um, you know, another one I'll just mention one more is uh, it's called grounding, where you're really using your senses to get back into your body, back into the present. So name like five things that you see around you. Uh, naming four things that you can hear, three things that you can touch things you can smell, things you can taste. So you get the point. Yeah. Basically, uh, it's orienting yourself back into your senses. That's very grounding and it helps us to get into that zone where we are emotionally regulated. And so that's that's another principle. It's just like that nervous system regulation, learning the skills. And there are a lot of different skills. That book I mentioned earlier is a good resource, Anchored by Deb Dana. Um, 
that's a really good one. Um, another, you know, principle of trauma-informed manifesting is feeling, having our inner child feel safe. So healing old emotional wounds. Again, it's about safety. And there are a lot of different ways to work with inner child healing, um, but that's a big part of it. Uh, again, feeling safe and addressing those core wounds because those, are the, those younger parts of us are the ones that hold the beliefs and are triggering us. And so that's the second piece. And then the third piece or principle is then once you've worked with feelings of safety and established safety and are on a healing path, then working with visualization exercises where you imagine the desired outcome, then working with different practices around manifesting that are exciting and will help you to manifest the future that you want. But once you've dealt with healing some of the past, that's when manifesting the future becomes more effective. And so that's sort of the, the way that I approach it is that it's a step-by-step -step process. And what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions of people when it comes to um, manifesting like uh, maybe some people that tried it and were discouraged and said that oh it doesn't work it's a bunch of bullshit and it's like or maybe some beginner mistakes uh, exactly so like what do you think um, uh, are the reasons that usually um, lead people to disregard manifestation? Yeah, so I do think there are some common ones that definitely come up. The first one, and I see this often, is this idea or the belief that we have to be positive all of the time. So the idea that we have to have positive thoughts, positive emotions. And this is really an example of spiritual bypassing, which is a term coined by John Wellwood, um, which is basically like using idea spiritual ideas and beliefs to avoid facing emotional issues. Right. So this idea that we have to be positive all of the time isn't realistic. Yeah. And so we're kind of setting ourselves up for disappointment and frustration when we have this idea that we have to be positive all the time. Of course, we want to be positive more often, but not to expect that or demand that of ourselves, because when we suppress our, you know, negative thoughts or when we suppress our negative emotions or I don't really call them negative, but let's say more, more challenging emotions, <laughs> um, What that often results in is a rebound effect where we actually feel worse and have more mental health symptoms as a result. That's what the research shows. And so this idea that we have to be positive all the time, I think, is a misconception. We can get to, you know, if we actually have self-compassion, we're actually going to be in a, in a more positive state, right? If we have self-compassion, even if we're feeling like crap, even if we are feeling anxious, if we are feeling down, If we have self-compassion, that's actually going to, and we work with our emotions, like we regulate them, that's actually going to make us, put us in a better state. So putting all that pressure to be, you know, on ourselves to be, be positive can lead to adverse reactions, actually. And I, I address this in a course that I uh, recently did, which is called um, Healing from Negative Manifestation Experiences. Because a lot of people come to me because they try to follow manifestation ideas, being positive all the time. And what happens for some people is it exacerbates their mental health symptoms oh. or it triggers mental health symptoms that they've never even had. So they become anxious. Their OCD gets worse because now they're trying to get rid of all their negative thoughts and they're checking their thoughts oh. constantly. Yeah. Or they get depressed because what they want to manifest hasn't happened yet. And so 
Uh, I think that's one of the biggest uh, misconceptions is that we have to be positive all of the time. Yeah, I think this idea of toxic positivity is starting to be more discussed. But I think beyond the part like manifestation side of things, I think there's a lot of people who um, say that yeah, the best thing you can do is to wake up and smile. And and if you feel bad, then pretend that you're not feeling bad. And I think, sure, like I told you before uh, we started recording, sometimes in some situations in my life, um, faking um, that I feel happy and when actually I was going through something hard, um, made me more happy but I think it can be harmful it can be very harmful to disregard what you're truly feeling because when you think about it um, we are not made for happiness happiness is just uh, the side effect of our brain and what instincts lead us to eat and reproduce um, and be a part of the society and so I think toxic positivity is something that we really need to acknowledge and avoid at all cost and I think on this show we are a very big um, I for sure am a big proponent of self-compassion which then always as a result leads to being more compassionate towards um, other people and I know that you've done a lot of work um, uh, regarding mindful self-compassion and I'm curious if you can speak more about um, about it and about the, its importance and how can we develop that self-compassion? Yeah, I, I think self-compassion is such a game changer because once you start developing that, you realize that emotional well-being is more sustainable and more um, more attainable than sort of this idea of happiness that we have and happiness all of the time. Because we all suffer sometimes, you know. And so developing self-compassion is so important. So mindful self-compassion is, is based on the work of Dr. Kristen Neff. And she's a researcher. And she's basically, you know, looked at what happens when we are kind to ourselves, especially when we're suffering. You know, what happens when we comfort ourselves the way that we would comfort a friend who's having a hard time. And there are three parts to mindful self-compassion. One is obviously mindfulness, which is paying attention, uh, noticing the present What's, what's going on with us with curiosity, without judgment. Um, another piece is self-kindness. So being kind to ourselves when we're suffering, especially. And the third piece is common humanity, which is recognizing that we're not alone, that other people suffer as well. Not to negate our experience, but to feel like we're not the only ones. We don't have to feel ashamed. And so those are the three main parts of mindful self-compassion. And there's so many benefits to it. You know, research has shown that it increases life satisfaction. It actually increases motivation. You know, people fear that it's going to make them lazy, but it, research shows that it actually increases motivation. Um, it's linked to less anxiety, less depression, better relationships, better physical health. And so there are a lot of different benefits uh, we can get from mindful self-compassion. And there are a lot of different ways to foster it. Uh, it could be something like, for some people, it's physical touch. Right. So when they're suffering, they might give themselves a hug or they might put their hand on their heart. Oh, that's lovely. Um, which re releases oxytocin and it reduces our stress response. 
Um, so it could be physical or it could be self-compassion uh, talk, the way that we talk to ourselves. Not positive talk, self-talk, but self-compassionate self-talk. So what that looks like is um, there's something called a mindful self-compassion break where you basically say to yourself, this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I be kind to myself. And so it's really effective when we, you know, put those together and turn that into a practice or just ask ourselves, you know, what do I need in this moment that's healthy? You know, what can I do to comfort myself? And that's healthy, right? Not necessarily negative. I really, really like that. I think I need to like kind of tattoo this on my head and so that suffering is a part of life. This is okay. I can feel this. It's not, it doesn't speak to my value or lack thereof. I'm completely enough even if I feel bad yes absolutely and so it's really effective and it's the opposite of like what you're saying toxic positivity which is a lot more sort of focused on forcing ourselves to having a positive mindset even if you know at the expense of our actual emotional pain that we're having in the moment um what are some of the examples um, maybe like outside of manifestation that maybe of your clients that struggled with toxic positivity um, and like maybe can you share some of their stories of course uh, completely anonymously yeah yeah of course so, so some of the common ones that I hear are you know if somebody with anxiety they'll hear maybe from well-intentioned relatives and people who care about them you should just relax or worrying is a waste of time yeah you know, and, and no one relaxes by being told that to relax, so that it isn't effective. And it's, you know, of course, it might be well-intentioned. But so for people with anxiety, I often hear that. Um, for people with trauma, I sometimes hear um, that people, other people tell them or they tell themselves that they should forgive or that they should feel grateful for what they have. Oh. And, in a, such a way that negates their, you know, emotional pain. Yeah. And so that can be really difficult, you know. And for people who have depression, what I see is people will tell them or they tell themselves, like, that this idea that happiness is a choice. And so they're like, oh, my gosh, am I choosing to be depressed? Is this my fault? Again, it's sort of like this messaging of this is your fault. Yeah. So toxic positivity comes up often in those kind of scenarios. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not helpful in those situations. You know, it can increase feelings of isolation because then people don't want to share their real feelings or what's happening with them. Yeah. Or, you know, just actually exacerbate their mental health symptoms. I think a lot of uh, these uh, kind of pieces of advice are just, right, they're just advice from people who have a really old-fashioned approach to mental health that you should push down your um, your uncomfortable feelings and emotions and uh, be grateful for what you have. You know, you have food on your table. Uh, you can wake up every day and have two hands. What more do you want? And I think we all have that, you know, uncle or grandpa who who had that um who had that approach and you know they were they were people of authority and it kind of stays with you and and you kind of yeah you have that inner child that just listens to that I actually the, the idea of that inner child is so interesting I'm just starting to get into that but I think um we often forget that that there is this part of ourselves that still is um like 
our childhood self that is sometimes scared of right the people that are uh, that have authority and power over us and um can you speak a bit about right our inner child and what we um what people get wrong about it and um how can we introduce inner child healing um in our um, daily routine sure i i love that subject so i could talk all day about that because <laughs> and and i think it goes really well with self compassion because one of the most effective things we can do is to turn that that compassion towards the inner child very specifically so it's not just like self compassion like to me all the time in all the ways you know but it's like no i i'm thinking about myself as a teenager i'm thinking about myself as a 5 year old and i'm sending compassion to that 5 year old or that teenager you know, those younger parts of us, those younger um, aspects of us. And, you know, inner child work, there are different approaches to it, but the one that I follow, uh, it's called Internal Family Systems Therapy, IFS, and it's very effective, um, and great trauma therapy. And basically, it's about developing a relationship with your inner child parts, the parts of you that are younger, younger versions of you. And so it's sort of like reparenting yourself, Right. So you can be that authoritative, um, not authoritarian, but like authoritative <laughs> healing kind of guiding presence who, that's going to nurture and protect those younger parts of yourself. And I think that is such an amazing work that's so deep and healing when people start doing that. It's not easy always, you know. Yeah, for sure. But I think when you develop a secure attachment or when younger parts of you develop a secure attachment to you as, as the authority, um, as the, you know, sort of parent who's reparent, doing the reparenting, you develop such like such a confidence and security that you couldn't, I mean, I'm not saying relationships aren't important. Of course, supportive, safe relationships yeah. are important to any kind of healing work, but that attachment that we can develop within is also so healing. And so, Anytime anyone embarks on like inner inner child work, it's just amazing because I that's why I think it's so important for manifesting because you can change your entire life for the better and truly thrive when you start doing that. It's such a such a big transformative experience. You've said before uh, in one of your like earlier on in the conversation about uh, an anxious attachment style and now with um, the inner child. Uh, I'm curious uh, about, I, I, I think I've heard about uh, different styles of attachment, but not really. And um, can you explain what sorts of attachment uh, do we have? Uh, well, I mean, what sort of attachment style do we have? And uh, can we change that maybe throughout our lives or is one better than the other? Well, you know, with, with all attachment styles, there are ways that we developed that were... Um, you know, helped us to be resilient with whoever our caregivers were. So I think there's no right way to sort of right. um, think about attachment styles. It's sort of what we, we did the best that we could with what we had to survive. And, <laughs> and so again, self-compassion coming, coming back to that. But there are some main ones. So secure attachment is, you know, just what it sounds like. And so that's where we feel trust, where we feel um, safe with our caregivers, we can develop secure attachment. Then there are different types of insecure attachment. So there is anxious attachment, um, which is, again, like what it sounds like, where we uh, need some more reassurance and we have some anxiety behaviors that come up around relationships. Um, another one is avoidant. 
And avoidant is sort of like we're keeping people at arm's length. And again, it's, it's insecure attachment, so we don't feel safe in relationships, and that's the way that we deal with them. Then there's disorganized attachment, where it's a combination of anxious and avoidant. So it's sort of like hot and cold. Oh, what a combo. Yeah, right? So it's sort of like hot and cold, where we're like, we're, we're like, you know, anxiously trying to get that person to respond to us. And then we're like, we don't, I don't need you. Never mind. Stay away. You know, <laughs> I think we all know that person. Right? Yeah. So there are different attachment styles that we have and we can all have what's called earned att- secure attachment, which is basically like where we learn secure attachment skills and we apply them. And over time we, you know, and in addition to having safe people, supportive people in our lives, we can develop secure attachment so that that feels more normal to us. And so attachment styles are so, so helpful to understand. And again, kind of going back to our inner child healing, we can develop a secure attachment with our inner child. And also kind of going back even to the spirituality piece that we talked about, you know, we also have an attachment, what's called divine attachment to, if we're spiritual, right, we believe in a higher power, we can develop an attachment style to uh, the divine. So we can feel insecure where we feel like, has God abandoned me? Is God, you know, if, if, oh, if we use that kind of language. That is so interesting. Yeah. I never thought about that, but that makes sense. I mean, it's like one more relationship in your life uh, with that divine power. And that relationship also doesn't have to be healthy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think this is, you know, something that I definitely saw in my research with infertility is that people would wonder like, oh, is God punishing me for that abortion I had years ago? Or is, you know, um, has God abandoned me? Mm -hmm. Or I'm angry at God and I feel too guilty to express that anger or deal with it. And so it's, again, sort of, we can have attachment styles to all these different things, you know, whether it's our inner child, having an attachment style to us. Um, Romantically, it gets brought, triggered and brought up. And also we can have a divine attachment. And there's actually a ton of research on a divine attachment. I, I have a real interest in that because a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of research on the psychology of spirituality. Oh, well, I need to get into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, let's get into that. I mean, you. I know that you have a lot of experience with um, the psychology of spirituality, uh, which, like I said, almost makes you the perfect kind of guest for this podcast because I think it's like this intersection of the science behind the stuff that we cannot really pinpoint uh, in our mind or in our body. And um, I wanted to ask you to explain some of right, the science behind, um, for example, mindfulness meditation or, uh, or other spiritual practices. And yeah, do you think that spiritual health is really as uh, important as mental health, which a lot of people claim it is? Yeah, I, I think that spiritual health and mental health are definitely, especially for people who, you know, uh, identify as spiritual or have some sort of practice around it, spirituality, um, I think they're so interconnected because, for example, you know, going back to sort of the idea of having a relationship to a higher power, um, most of the research shows that that can make us more emotionally resilient, right? So that can benefit us emotionally and mentally when it comes to health, but like any other relationship, it can have its ups and downs. So for example, with anger towards the universe or God, um, that's actually associated with uh, depression and having an insecure attachment 
or relationship to the divine is associated with anxiety. Um, so when, when we actually start to recognize that these things can be, um, can affect each other, like our, our mental health, emotional health can affect our spiritual health and vice versa, then it becomes important to actually start processing our feelings around those, those issues. So for example, let's say it's the relationship with the, with the divine, we can start acknowledging like, Hey, there's some anger there. Let me process that anger. Let me talk about that openly and really, uh, you know, give myself space to explore that. And what does that mean? And so I think you can look at it from both ways. Like you can become healthier on either end when you start working on either the emotional piece or the spiritual piece, uh, the relationship. And as far as mindfulness, um, I think, again, it goes back to relationships because it's mindfulness is really about our relationship with our thoughts and our relationship with our emotions. So, you know, back in the olden days, and, I, you know, obviously this is still practice, but we were sort of trained that, you know, you can change your thoughts. And that has very, in terms of psychology and therapy, that has changed a lot over the years. Yeah. Now everything is sort of mindfulness-based, and there's so much research around it where it's more about changing your relationship to your thoughts, your relationship to your emotions, having a more compassion. Which is like a huge change and like a like best change we can have. Exactly. Because, right, happiness is not a choice. Exactly. So it's really acknowledging and accepting what is the, th what you know, you're having these thoughts or you're having these uh, emotions in a non-judgmental way and being able to explore them, being able to uh, accept them. You know, there are so many different therapy approaches. There's one uh, in particular called acceptance and commitment therapy, where you accept the emotion, again, very mindfully, uh, that you're currently having, but your action, your behavior is based on your value. So you accept and you commit to a value. So you commit okay. to, okay, I'm afraid to do this thing, but I value something else even more. So let's say it's public speaking. That's a common example. You're afraid maybe to do public speaking, but you're committed to advocacy. You're committed to um, engage in behaviors that promote something, right? So you can choose actions more than you can choose thoughts, more than you can choose emotions. Sure. And so it's really about how we, the relationships that we have with those, those things. I think um my relationship with spirituality has really it's been like a roller coaster um and especially with like the divine forces i've been raised christian but then that changed a bit and now i'm kind of i think i have let go of those expectations of what my relationship with spirituality and my spirituality per se um should be Um, but I'm still very interested in spiritual well-being, um, no matter if you are a person who is a believer or not. Um, and can you share uh, how can we um, detect what is like a sign uh, that our spiritual being needs some work and that we should address that? Mm, that's a really, really good question. One thing I would say first maybe is to look at um, again it's integrating psychology and spirituality to look at are your beliefs your spiritual beliefs and practices contributing to mental health or are they harming mental health sure 
that's sort of like the first test that I would do when it comes to any kind of belief system or practices. Um, and then you can kind of take it from there. And if it feels like it's harmful, which again, the research shows that, you know, if there's a conflict or a spiritual struggle, we really want to address those spiritual struggles because it can affect our mental health. Um, so really looking at it as, is this a spiritual struggle? Am I, are my mental health symptoms worse because of the spiritual struggle? And so those can be signs that this is like an area to look at. Yeah, yeah, I think that's like a very big sign and that shows that we need to do some work. I think before we go, I kind of want to go back to um, the idea of toxic positivity mm -hmm. uh, because like another term related to, you know, too much of a good thing is, well, toxic productivity. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. what is your take on that? Um, and how have you helped uh, maybe some of your clients that were struggling with with productivity and the obsessions related to, you know, doing enough and doing things on time and, yeah, being just, quote-unquote, productive? Yeah, I, I, that comes up very, very often in, in my private practice. So um, toxic productivity, I think of it as, again, it's a stress response, right? So that's sort of like where we get stuck into a, in a chronic... Uh, flight response where we're kind of racing around trying to get a lot of things done it also I think ties into some core wounds about around self-worth often and perfectionism certainly getting triggered there um, so often working on you know what's what's the root cause that's one piece of it again that healing work like you know which younger version of you first experienced mm -hmm. this this sort of uh, need to, to uh, engage in to toxic uh, productivity um, or, you know, what got triggered where this became sort of like a trauma response, the toxic productivity and sort of very practical ways to deal with it would be self-awareness, noticing when you're feeling triggered to be more productive and to do more and having some uh, emotion regulation strategies around that. Because again, if you are in a stress response, then having some kind of strategies that help regulate you. And it could be anything, could be, okay, you know what, I'm feeling really uh, overstimulated right now and I want to just do, do, do. Well, maybe meditation's not going to work for you in that moment, but maybe a walk around the block or maybe yeah. some yoga will, will help to clear your mind or some deep breathing um, so that you can get back into a regulated state where you're able to be more intentional because when we're emotionally dysregulated again we our thinking brain our prefrontal cortex goes offline so we can't make intentional choices it's a lot harder to override that and so if we can regulate our nervous system when we're feeling so activated and those trauma wounds around self-worth are getting activated again it could be different activities for different people but having a strategy that you know works for you to regulate your nervous system um, while you're trying to figure out like the root cause of the productivity is great. Again, boundaries. I know that this isn't something we've talked about today, but I know that this is something that definitely comes up around manifesting around productivity is boundaries. Yeah, I think boundaries are very The more important. boundaries we have, the easier it is to not feel scattered, to have our energy focused on what matters, to prioritize what's important to us, what's aligned with our values. And so looking at what's on our plate and what really doesn't need to be there. Yeah, 
I think what I struggle with the most is like when establishing boundaries, I want to keep a balance between, you know, not not putting there like too many walls and too many boundaries um, and uh, falling too much into my comfort zone, but also not saying yes to everything, not um, not fulfilling everyone's expectations and everyone's needs before mine. And I think it's sometimes hard to maintain that balance because I'm a person who really like I make myself do a lot of maybe uncomfortable things at first I have a lot of challenges that I put myself but I realized that even though sometimes it's hard I like it I like the feeling when I can overcome this and it doesn't necessarily lead me to um, feeling bad about myself or sometimes you know sometimes I am stressed but it's hard for me to write decide whether I should put more boundaries because maybe I'm stressed or or maybe I'm relying too much on these challenges with my self-worth but on the other I know that um, making these things and and proving myself that holy shit I I didn't think that I could do that Mm -hmm. but here I am um, it makes me feel good so maintaining that balance and finding that sweet spot I think is something that I personally struggle with yeah and I think this is the case for every entrepreneur is like <laughs> what is that balance and I know that that's the case for myself too is like you know it's so exciting to stretch yourself and to see you know especially as an entrepreneur you wear so many hats yeah and you're learning constantly um, it could be exciting but you're also juggling a ton as an entrepreneur, usually because of all the hats that we, yeah. you know, one has to wear. And so, yeah, I think it is a really tough balance to, to sort of notice. But sometimes I think people will, will get a sense of it like, oh, you know, I've been getting sick a lot lately. That might be a sign yeah. of our bodies sort of saying, hey, slow down. Or we might be snapping at people and irritable. That might be a sign that we need to slow down or you know, that we, we notice we're not present. So we, it's exciting to overcome challenges and to gain, I think, some sense of uh, competency in different areas. But if we notice that it's at the cost of our peace or our time with people too much, I think it is it is a lot yeah. about like that work-life balance. I think it comes back again just to noticing, to being present, to mm-hmm. mindfulness. Like without that, without sitting for a second and noticing how you feel, what are like well, how your body feels, what are your thoughts, and without noticing that, you are not going to notice if you're um, doing too much. You're not going to notice that maybe I'm feeling sick. You're not going to notice that I have a bad relationship with my inner child, with um, the people around me, with the people that are in authority in my life, with um, all those things. I think all the things that we talked about today come back to the idea of mindfulness, to self-awareness, to finding the time to have that introspection um, and learning if the things that I'm doing are okay. If they're not, that's completely fine. If you're not a bad person, maybe you just need to rethink mm-hmm. what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Like like doing that sort of uh, inventory personal inventory but like in a (laughs) self-compassionate way like what's going on with me and being self-aware absolutely well this conversation has been so great I learned so much I think um I need to write down the types of attachments that there are and just kind of psychoanalyze all my friends (laughs) (laughs) um uh yeah thank you so much for joining us this has been such a pleasure thank you so much for having me 
Um, when it comes to places where the listeners can find you online, if they want to learn more, where should they go? Well, the first place is absolutely my website, uh, where you can find my blogs, newsletters, and freebies that I give out and courses. So that would be drannacress.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-A-K-R-E-S-S.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at drannacress. Um, do you want to like have a final, um, like maybe you do like a short quote or say something directly to the listeners or advice? Well, I, lost I guess I have is that, you know, word. if you have had any sort of, um, I'm thinking about this in terms of my uh, healing from negative manifestation experiences course, thinking about if anyone has had a negative experience where they feel like, you know, maybe they're not good at manifesting or they feel like things are their fault or they worry that they're not positive enough to remember to have self-compassion and that um, it's not all your fault and, it, and it's okay to struggle with that and there are ways to definitely heal. Amen to that. Look, going back to spirituality. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, what a lovely chat. It's kind of hard for me to describe the feeling that I get after talking to a guest that I really admire or the guest that I think has a vast knowledge of a topic that I'm interested in. But it's really incredible. It's like this excitement. It's also, you know, this feeling of gaining something gaining this knowledge and gaining this new perspective and sharing our common humanity with someone that I like I said that that I admire so yeah I really I really enjoyed that chat and um I was since recording this I was kind of thinking about manifestation and whether I am a believer in it uh, because I think it's true and there's like this sea of scientific evidence supporting the psychological aspect of manifestation and of fake it till you make it and also of just, you know, focusing on our goals and how our subconscious uh, that is, you know, focused on something can lead us to make better decisions and decisions that can make our future fit within our goals so I do believe in that um it's I'm not a very spiritual person like I talked about in this discussion about my relationship with the divine it has changed a bit and that has kind of influenced the spiritual side of manifestation I don't know if I really believe in like the energy that you create and send out to the world is the energy that you attract um because it's kind of hard for me to define that energy. Um, so in that way, the law of attraction that is, you know, described in the book, The Secret. I don't know if I'm a big fan of that. Um, but I think what Anna has said today is something that agrees with me. And so, yeah, I really, I really liked this conversation because I gained a lot of new perspectives. Um, and even though manifestation may or may not it's hard to say yet work for me I will definitely try it I am actually trying it out even though it may or may not work for me I am really happy with having these conversations and sharing them because they may be the most important thing for 
you. Uh, you know, before we started talking, uh, Anna asked me, why are you interested in manifestation and what are you planning to kind of get from this discussion? And I, I said that I love learning about the world. I am very interested in pretty much everything regarding, like I say every time, ways that we can become, you know, happier, wiser, healthier, more compassionate towards ourselves and others. And I think manifestation can be a big part of that. But even if it won't be that for me, it might be life-changing for at least one of you, one of the listeners, because I really, I can't count all of the episodes of my favorite podcasts that changed my lives and maybe the hosts aren't really even aware of that of their impact on my life but there are there were so many interviews that really changed my perspective on, or on something and provided me with tools that really helped me develop the relationship that I have with myself and with sport and with you know learning and with work and all of those things and I really hope that manifestation and specifically trauma-informed manifestation can be of help to you and can change your life because I am I, I really believe that it can. And if you want to learn more, check out uh, Dr. Anna Kress's website. It will be in the episode description. And now before I go, my insight of the week is going to be a quick one. I recently realized that I I don't really like sleep. I don't know if it's a hot take. I don't know many people who do not like sleeping. Uh, but hear me out. So, like everyone, you know, I sometimes do not like, you know, getting up. This is, I think, universal. And when I sleep and when I'm, I want to have that feeling of being tired after I wake up and I just want to stay in bed, I think everyone has that but I really, if I could take a pill that would allow me to never sleep and to feel rested and recovered each night, then like hell, I would eat it like candy. But like, I just think that when it's time every day, when it's time for me to get to bed, I don't really feel tired and I don't, I mean, sometimes I do, but usually it's not that I feel tired. I just know that, oh my God, I need to get to bed now because otherwise I will not get those eight hours of sleep. And I sometimes, I most of the time I just dread going to bed. I am not a big fan of it because I just find it very boring I guess and I don't like experiencing nothing. You know, I like the feeling when I am in bed before I go to sleep and I like the feeling after I wake up but I think sleeping I just I just don't really like it I think sometimes I dream about something but it's also like during the time it's not really that amazing you know it's more like when I wake up and remember that I dreamt um, those things so yeah I'm not the biggest fan of sleeping I just I just don't like experiencing nothing and I think there are so many things that I would like to do or that it's like evening and I have so many things that I want to do or like things that I want to learn about or you know go for a run or whatever and I feel like I have to go to bed and it's like a waste of time and even though it helps me I feel rested and it helps me you know get some energy for the a huge amount of work that I need to get done even though 
it is useful. I feel like it's a waste of time of, that I could spend better and help others. And, you know, yeah, if there's ever going to be a pill that you can take and don't sleep, I would take it. And I don't know, for example, learn how to play the piano better or learn another language or just, you know, work more on this podcast or work on whatever. And I just feel like, yeah, I dread going to bed most days. So, yeah, I hope this is not too controversial. And maybe there are some more people like me out there. If you feel this way, if you also are not the biggest fan of going to bed and sleeping eight hours a night and you would like to spend it otherwise, let me know. I really want to discuss that with you. And you can hit me up on our Instagram. It's at beingbetter.pod or using our email. That is podcast.beingbetter at gmail.com. I love you so much. I wanted to say that when you smile, you make the world seem like a more beautiful, brighter place and you make the sun shine more brightly and you make my tea a bit sweeter and yeah, you just make the time go faster. So please smile for me, for yourself, for the people around you and I will speak to you in the next episode. Being Better is edited and produced by Julia Spohr. You can learn more about the show and about other work over at our website, beingbetter.info. And the Instagram is at beingbetter.pod. If you want to support us, the best way to do that is by word of mouth. So if you can, please tell your family, your friends, and what the hell, also tell your enemies. You know, we don't discriminate on this podcast. So tell them about the show, tell them about why you like it and about why you like the incredibly amazing and very humble host. You can also share it on social media platforms and if you tag us, we'll make sure to reply. Thank you so much for joining us today and I'll speak to you very, very soon.